0: None of the content on this or any episode of the Kratom Science Podcast, Kratom Science Journal Club, or on any page of KratomScience.com is intended, nor should it be considered medical claims or medical advice. This is the Kratom Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com. Your source for all things Kratom. My guest for the second time on the Kratom Science Podcast is Dr. Cornell Stansiou. He's an addiction psychiatrist at Dartmouth Geisel School of Medicine. He's running a new Kratom survey for Kratom consumers. There's a link in the description. It's anonymous and it only takes three minutes. You have a new survey uh, for Kratom consumers. And I'll have a link in the description so anybody who wants to take this survey can just look in the description of the podcast and uh, take it. If you would just talk about the survey and, and what you're looking for here.
1: I, I guess it might uh, might help to, uh, for those who, uh, who are not familiar with, with what I do. Just to provide sure. a little bit of uh, background, I'm, uh, I'm an addiction psychiatrist. I am primarily uh, clinically uh, based, so I, uh, I interact patients uh, rather than strongly being involved in laboratory research. And uh, I do have a strong interest in pretty much all aspects of, uh, of Kratom and the impact that it does have on uh, the patients that I work with, those that have psychiatric and addictive disorders. My interest began about 10 years ago, and that's when I, um, I first started uh, seeing uh, patients who are Kratom consumers, and throughout the course of the last years, it just really put me down this path of just wanting to know more, everything that there is out there on the topic, uh, to where I started contributing to the literature, doing some studies, publishing articles, and um I guess in recent years, I've become relied more upon uh, for my expertise among the medical community. I've consulted in, uh, in some uh, cases and also have been invited to conferences to help disseminate information on Kratom to, uh, to fellow colleagues in other specialties. Now, um, this particular uh, survey that I'm looking to, uh, to get some help with, it's always a fine line how much information to, uh, to really disclose in a way not to influence uh, the participants' responses. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, uh, it's really meant to provide more insight into the impact of Kratom on uh, consumers both good and bad. Mm -hmm. What I'm looking to gain uh, here is uh, more of an understanding of how individuals are consuming Kratom, what they're using it for, what are the benefits, what are the adverse effects or any, any side effect. What is the overall impact that Kratom had on their lives? And I also want to learn more about the individual's uh, background. Do they have any comorbid psychiatric conditions, any addictive disorders? And also, I'm hoping that I'll be able to uh, also gain a better understanding of where kratom consumers are located around uh, the country. Uh, One of the questions in the survey will ask about the first three digits of the zip code just a uh, full disclosure this is a 100% anonymous survey no information will ever um, uh, be able to to trace it back to the individual uh, survey participant mm-hmm. but uh, this first few digits of the zip code will really be uh, able to hopefully allow us to, to map where where they're located around the uh, the country so it's a, it's a brief survey and i'm uh, i'm really hoping to to have some good participation going so we can all expand what we know on uh, on kratom <sighs>
0: yeah and this is just for your university right
1: yeah yeah so i'm um, I'm an assistant professor at Dartmouth Geisel School of Medicine. This study was vetted through their uh, institutional review board. I would say it's uh, it's more because of my interest in uh, in the topic rather than uh, part of any uh, uh, institutional incentive and it's not done for the purpose of providing information for any regulatory board or anyone that's that's looking to classify or, or ban Kratom. Just trying to to reach out to all current Kratom consumers rather than just a proportion who's looking to participate in uh, this type of um, scientific studies or uh, who are recruited via other modalities.
0: Yeah, we should say that, you know, even if, if you had a good experience, bad experience, you should take it so we can get a you can you can get a complete picture it, it seems like some of the surveys kind of and and you looked at this in your papers they sometimes have a bias because people who, who are having a good experience are more likely to take them is that right
1: absolutely um i um i did look at, at some of uh, some of the literature um concerning, you know, harm reduction, concerning the, so to say, overdose or poisoning risk. Certainly, as, as I'm sure you know, there's different uh, different layers to scientific literature. You have more of the expert opinions, anecdotal reports, case reports, going up into more of the randomized control trials, meta-analysis, and then the highest level, uh, the, the actual uh, systemic uh, reviews of, uh, of the literature, which looks at all these layers. And when it comes to Kratom, obviously the case reports involve clinical settings and myself included patients don't uh, don't come to me to say hey i'm doing great on kratom mm-hmm. they uh, they come to me because either they've experienced some uh, some type of adverse effect or they're looking to uh, to get help in uh, in coming off uh, so that's part of what generates those uh, those case reports so i would say they are a little bit biased more towards the the risks observational studies Depends who's uh, who's conducting it. Obviously, there would be some uh, some type of bias if uh, those who uh, derived benefit are the only ones participating, mm-hmm. and it's based on subjective report. And at the same time, there's bias if it's based just on reports uh, that have been uh, filed with uh, with various agencies. Uh, so there there's biases ev- everywhere.
0: <laughs> yeah, I took th- the survey as well, and and I like there's an opportunity to provide a written answer if none of the choices apply to you I think because the one it was uh, how often do you use and I think it was daily several times daily but since I don't use daily I wrote in you know sometimes it's not even once a month etc so I noticed you know you could write your own answer for some of them
1: yeah Yeah. you can uh, you can tailor it according to to your individual uh, patterns
0: and, yeah, I noticed one of the choices for why was just to feel less crappy, which I thought was pretty funny. And I thought I saw that maybe on one of Dr. Uh, Kirsten Smith's, uh, but I like that as an option because that, yeah, that's to, one uh, of my reasons. <laughs> to
1: be honest, I uh, I stole all of them from, uh, from her survey. Okay. Yeah, yeah with permission.
0: I stole it with permission. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> How will the results be used? I guess, will you publish a paper on what you found?
1: Yeah, so I will... Hopefully, um, have a biostatistician interested in uh, in assisting with looking at the data. But what I'm hoping to to do is eventually maybe find some uh, some associations, some uh, correlations between uh, all this uh, information that I'm hoping to to gain, and then hopefully it can serve many different purposes. Uh, primarily, myself being a clinician, I would be more interested in seeing. Perhaps, or getting, getting more of an idea of uh, what type of patient benefits from Kratom, what type doesn't. Who perhaps might require more, more of a screening for use, more of a, a different individualized approach, knowing that uh, that they are users, and more more so to to try and face who who benefits and who may not.
0: The harm reduction paper. Well, it's a review of the literature. I noticed like a lot of people just kind of in the abstract or in the introduction they say the FDA has expressed that there's no evidence to indicate the botanical is safe or effective for medical use. Are are there any botanicals that they say is safe for medical use, or do they just say that with everything that's not an approved drug? I'm just kind of wondering about that. Or is it just good to note that in any introduction about Kratom?
1: Yeah, a, lo- a lot of a lot of them do uh, involve uh, a little bit of a discussion on the FDA's uh, position. You mm. probably are more familiar than me on uh, some of the legal issues uh, battles over the past few uh, few years mm-hmm. if you were to, to ask me how um, I know I'm going a little bit off uh, off topic but how uh, how I feel about the I. Uh... I, I really don't think they have a, a good understanding of uh, of this botanical I know they've uh, they've been pushing for it to um, to be um, classified and made into into schedule one which personally I um, after after doing these type of reviews of, of literature and examining all uh, all the evidence, I really just don't think that there is there is sufficient and robust clear data to to justify that. I I really think that classifying it as a as a control under the the CSA would also hinder some of the research, and that's exactly what we need. We need more more research into this uh, this botanical. We don't need to cause any any further hindrances. But yeah, a, a lot of the papers have expressed the FDA's position, and I did include a little bit of
0: of that in uh, in my review as well. Because I know they did, I think it was in the overdose paper, the um, FAIRS uh, database you looked at and um, mm-hmm. the suitors and, and this was uh, the reporting for Kratom deaths. We've heard about limitations of uh, the vaccine uh, adverse reporting system. It's kind of like an open reporting system. Does that FAIRS reporting system have the same limitations where it's sort of open and it's self-reporting?
1: I actually looked at several um, papers that were based on data collecting through uh, through different databases. That obviously includes the fairs, the poison control uh, databases, death certificates, and uh, and everything else. And with the uh, with the fairs uh, specifically, there's only um, one that looks primarily. I'm not too too familiar with how the the reporting takes place into it. But the bottom line is that they found that the side effects that uh, were quite serious, including deaths, um, and had uh, kratom linked to them, did involve uh, other substances, which obviously we, we know from, uh, from other studies as well.
0: Can kratom still be considered causative even if there were other drugs present? So that's an interesting
1: question because I, I think there's no universal standardized way to, uh, to really report deaths that uh, that did involve uh, Kratom. they um, looking at particularly the the papers that uh, examine coroner reports it was interesting because you had cases where um, First of all, most, most, if not all, it did involve uh, article ingestions that had respiratory suppressant effect, either prescribed medication or illicit substances. What was interesting to me is that there was no correlation between uh, the actual uh, concentration of the alkaloids reported in those death certificates when reported and whether kratom was deemed to be the the cause of death. So, for example, you would have cases where um, say one had extremely high metragenin concentration yet kratom was not deemed to be the the cause of death they uh, uh they claimed it was uh, the other opioids that were co-ingested and then you had cases where kratom was extremely low in terms of the concentration yet it was deemed uh, the cause of death so there's there's really I, f- I feel like it's not a universal standardized way that uh that these uh, information is being reported it may just be left up to the individual medical examiner and and coroner to uh, determine. It's, It's quite subjective, I would say.
0: You also mentioned in coroner's reports that the substance isn't tested very often, mm-hmm. the actual substance they took. And as you mentioned, and in, in I think probably both of the papers, that you don't know what you're getting from one substance to the other. And then there's the extracts and the plain powder and everything seems to have different alkaloid concentrations. Why do you think they're not testing the substances? Would it be like maybe cost prohibitive to do so? Because it seems like we're not talking about the same thing across the board and then there's a lot of contamination and and things like mm-hmm. that
1: right i um, also something to to keep in mind is that the reported concentrations are um, very tremendously in terms of the timeline from when uh, when they were collected you're right they uh, some of those laboratories don't report it primarily because you would have to have a high index of suspicion that kratom is involved to require testing and uh, and also there's Tremendous variation in terms of analytical modalities in which they're uh, examining the, the alkaloids. Any, any other contaminants or uh, anything else that may be present in, uh, in the currently available Kratom products, of course.
0: The seven hydroxy and It seems to be. It seems to be more like morphine, and a lot of even the animal studies. And I, I did interview um, Christopher McCurdy, who was uh, on one of these papers, and and he told me mm-hmm. they've seen the levels of the seven hydroxy go down in many of the dried products in the U.S. from what they were. And it seems to occur in very small amounts. But even in small amounts, does that pose kind of more of a risk? Because he also told me they looked at the uh, some of the fresh leaf plants, which are used traditionally uh, over in like Malaysia and Thailand, and he said they don't have as much of the or any of the seven hydroxy in the plant. Um, so, is the amount of that might be a factor in and how much risk for addiction there is? <laughs> Um,
1: yeah. So um, obviously, the the animal studies that looked at uh, at individual alkaloids do suggest, as you as you put it, that uh, the seven hydroxymetrogenin tends to to act a little bit more more like the traditional opioids. Whether nitrogenine um, does have some uh, intriguing, at least intriguing to me. Uh, properties in the way that uh, it interacts with uh, with those opioid receptors. Uh, I uh, I saw somewhere it actually helps in decreasing uh, uh, morphine intake, helps uh, with uh, ver- various other aspects of uh, addictive disorders. But as far as the addictive properties, and I'm sure there's my understanding is that there's two school of thoughts with regards to how 7 uh, nitrogenine is uh, is formed some believe that it is more of a oxidized product from the plant whereas other believe that it does require the type of metabolism that takes place in uh, in the human body for for transformation and that that may be the active product from mm-hmm. uh, from introgenin. i uh, i'm not aware of any study looking at uh, these products that we have here in, uh, in the United States and how much variation there is in, uh, in the mitragynine uh, content.
0: How did you find that mitragynine compared with morphine in some of the animal studies? Kind of like a two-part question. And How indicative are the animal studies are of what the uh, substance is going to do in people? How do they translate into uh, the effects on human beings, uh, especially for um, addiction and dependency?
1: Yeah, so that's always an interesting question and how you can translate information from uh, from animal studies to uh, to humans, and I uh, I think when it comes to to kratom, we really don't know. There is some evidence, just focusing primarily on uh, on the opioid receptor. There is some evidence in animal studies. nitrogenine does have more of a partial agonist, or I should say, depending on the concentration, it's more of either an antagonist or or agonist. Whereas in humans, it tends to be more more of a partial uh, partial agonist. So, even at the receptor level, there's some uh, some uh, differences there. In terms of uh, translating this information, we uh, we really just have to look at it in a way that we we take everything with uh, with a grain of salt. Mm. What um, what was found in uh, in animal studies is that nitrogenine tends to the majority of them tends to prevent cross tolerance to to morphine, and also when uh, when co-administered, mm-hmm. it may even uh, decrease uh, the the administration and decrease emergence of uh, markers that are responsible for dependence. I- I'm intrigued by uh, by the therapeutic potential of uh, of mitragyny. When uh, when it comes to uh, to the risk for uh, for addiction, I think. The uh, seven hydroxymyric is much more uh, easily deemed as a, as a culprit there, because of uh, of its involvement, how it really provides the the reinforcing properties. So, I um, if we were to to have some some type of analogy, I would probably. Looking at the cannabis plant, I would probably look at mitragynine more like the CBD component, and uh, the 7-hydroxy more more as the uh, THC component.
0: And I've even pulled out a quote here that said, "At the mu opioid receptor, mitragynine has a much lower affinity compared to morphine, whereas 7-hydroxy has a much higher affinity than both." Right, that's right. True.
1: So even uh, even the, in the way that it uh, it
0: binds the receptor, it's uh it's stronger. It seems like in a lot of kratom, there's just not very much of it. But then people, I mean, you do see people that have uh, addiction problems. So there, it has to be something that's going on there.
1: We're we're learning more and more about the the neurobiology of, of addiction, how uh, how it really works, and how it can be applied to both. Um, um, addictions to, to substances, as well as to, to behavioral addictions. It's really all about the, the circuitry that, uh, that gets adjusted in, uh, in your brain. I'm, I'm sure you, will, you would agree that some individuals do, do develop an addiction to, to Kratom. Uh, these, are, these are the ones that uh, I tend to, to see in uh, clinical practice, and these are the ones that tend to, uh, to have more, more of a moderate to, to severe use disorder.
0: Are those people generally um, have they been addicted to like opioids in the past and then tried to switch to kratom, or are there a lot of people that just have never had an addiction and they started kratom and and got addicted to kratom?
1: Yeah, I'm um I'm seeing a, a little bit of uh of a mix. Okay, and if I if I were to categorize uh, the the type of patients who I'm seeing for both psychiatric and addictive disorders and how they interact with uh, with kratom, I uh, I think I can probably categorize them in uh, in two two categories. Uh, the the first one being patients who I'm uh, I'm treating either for psychiatric or addictive disorders, and they happen to at the same time consume kratom either due to a desire to to self manage various symptoms or um, improve their their mental and physical health. That's the one category, and then the second category, which I would say is the vast majority of individuals, those are, those are the people that uh, present to me because they've had a hard time in quitting kratom, or maybe they're uh, they started experiencing some uh, some adverse effect. Again, I, I see a disproportionate number of those who uh, who experience the the addiction side. I can um, probably provide um, a bit of an overview of how a such patient would present if uh, if we have the time.
0: Yeah. Yeah, sure. Okay. So
1: what comes to mind, I saw this, this lady on, uh, on an inpatient uh, behavioral health unit towards the end of last year, admitted for uh, management of bipolar uh, disorder. And um, she was a, a Kratom uh, consumer and expressed a desire to, uh, to get some, uh, some help while, uh, while here in the, in the hospital. And she told me she started about four, uh, four years ago. Initially was uh, was using just uh, five grams uh, daily in the morning. Then started increasing it to five grams in the morning, then in the afternoon, and uh, really over over the last uh, year, her um, her her use exponentially increased mm. slowly, very slowly, up on, uh, to where she was using eighteen grams every two to four hours. Wow! And yeah sometimes she would uh, she would wake up at night because she would uh, she would have some uh, some sweats or restlessness and have to uh, to prepare a, a drink at night her finances started to to suffer she ended up, she had switched vendors at one point and ended up getting um, a product that even she admitted it looked suspicious. And she ended up having uh, two uh, back-to-back seizures. Oh, wow. And her, um, her significant others have uh, have left her because of all these uh, issues that she was having. She tried getting off of it on, uh, on her own, did okay for, for a couple of days, uh, tried to fight through the withdrawals, then went back to it. Primary care try to help her with uh, with some supportive means, clonidine, uh, uh, anti-diarrheals. That helped for about two weeks or so, but really the the cravings and uh, everything else put her put her back into into using. Mm. Um, but this is someone that's never had any any type of addictive disorder. Like I said, she was uh, using primarily for for that uh, for that energy burst. Part of what uh, where I think we need. A lot more more research is uh, who uh, who is vulnerable. I, we know that mm-hmm. in general, addictive disorders genetics play a role, early exposure, um, underlying psychiatric and other substance use disorders, and even um, even someone that has a deficit in uh, in their reward system is more more predisposed. But we uh, we definitely need more uh, more uh, more research to to identify who is at risk at risk for uh, for such uh, adverse effects.
0: Yeah, and just addiction in general. I mean, I've read a lot of things about addiction that a lot of people who become addicted to any type of drug have are trying to um, deal with uh, past trauma, and like in particular, people who have childhood trauma or prone to very severe addiction. Is does that happen among a lot of uh, your patients, or, or some of them? Yeah, I I think uh, I think a lot of them have uh,
1: have had some uh, some trauma histories and uh, that obviously predisposes to to a whole uh, range of uh, of psychiatric and uh, and addictive disorders. As it pertains to uh, to this, I'm I'm sure you've uh, you've seen it thrown around, kratom use disorder, KUD. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is not uh, it's not actually recognized in uh, in the diagnostic and uh, yeah. statistical uh, manual. Um, I, um, I I think the the underlying processes, the neurobiological processes, is the same as for uh, for any other substance use disorder. Mm-hmm. You know, I have all uh, all these classes of alcohol, opioids, stimulant, cannabis, tobacco, uh, sedatives, all the way up to even caffeine. Mm-hmm. It's important. It's Possible to to develop uh, an, an addiction to them. Some more more severe than others. Um, obviously, uh, the opioids have uh, have gained more more of a reputation, in part due to the the deaths that that have been noticed over the last years. But it's uh, it's possible to to develop an addiction to to almost everything, in, including kratom, through through the same uh, type of mechanism. You know, all all these uh, all these substances do. Produce a um, a surge in uh, in dopamine, which is one um, mm-hmm. one of the neurotransmitters in our brain, and the dopamine tends to have uh, have an impact uh, on um, the basal ganglia, an area which really controls reward and our ability to to learn things based on reward. What happens is this really provides more of an euphoric effect at first, but with repeated exposure, especially repeated exposure to to high doses of uh, anything that uh, that triggers this dopamine, that area becomes a little bit less sensitive. So you get less uh, less of an uh, effect. That's that's called tolerance. Mm-hmm. Um, and this type of circuits are uh, are almost the same ones that are activated by natural reports. So like exercise food anything that, that triggers uh, pleasure so when one uh, is used to to getting uh, this activation from a substance everything else in their life really seems uh, like it's uh, it's not doing the same it doesn't uh, doesn't produce the same uh, the same effect for one that does have more of a moderate to to severe uh, addiction other parts of uh, the brain are involved as well including the the frontal lobe the prefrontal uh, cortex which regulates impulse control our ability to to use our values to regulate uh, the decisions that we make so it compromises that as well so it's uh, it's almost like imagine a car going downhill you have your foot all the way down on, uh, on the gas pedal, and you you cannot push the brakes. That's what happens in, uh, in uh, addictive disorders. And it's the same thing uh, with someone who, who does develop this, uh, this addiction to, to Kratom. It's, it's now uh, not entirely uh, different than uh, any other substances.
0: Do you have an idea of the percentage of people who use Kratom who develop an addiction?
1: I believe I uh, I saw a um, a survey that was done recently and was trying to uh, was trying to collect a lot of uh, different information. But one of them was uh, how many um, of uh, the participants would meet criteria for uh, a used disorder a diagnosis mm-hmm. according to uh, to the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, mm-hmm. and um, that number was thirty uh, percent but you have to realize that there's different uh, levels of, uh, of severity of, uh, of a use disorder. Mm-hmm. So you, you have the mild, moderate, and severe. And most of these um, uh, individuals that would have met criteria uh, would fall more in, in that mild category. I, I guess it would be relevant to um, provide a little bit of of background here on how we diagnose a, a use disorder. Yeah. it's um, it's based on eleven criteria that uh, are put forth by uh, by uh, by the DSM. Let's see if I can find here my manual so I can uh, tell you what these are. These eleven uh, criteria uh, involves say uh, the first one is. Do you find yourself ingesting the substance in larger amounts or for longer than you initially intend to? Second one is, have you found yourself wanting to cut down or quit and being unable to? Third one is, are you spending a lot of time obtaining, using, or recovering from the effects of the substance? Fourth, do you have cravings or urges to use the substance? Have you had any periods of time? where because of the effects of the substance, you are unable to perform at work, home, or school? Sixth, are you still using, even though you know it may cause problems in relationships? Seven, have you given up important social, occupational, recreational activities because of substance use? Eight, have you used the substance even when it puts you in danger? Nine, have you continued to use, even when you have a physical or psychiatric condition that is worsened or caused by the substance? Mm. Ten, do you have do you find that you are needing more of the substance to get the desired effect? And eleven, have you developed withdrawal when stopping the substance abruptly? To meet criteria for a use disorder, you only need two of these. Okay. And- this uh, this information is extracted more based on uh, the the interview with the patient. It's not like you would sit there and, and ask the patient these uh, these questions like that. It's more from the conversation that you have with the patient, you in- extract whether they would need these or not. So. You know, with with kratom, uh, I I think it's very easy to to meet criteria based on the last two two questions alone. Do you find that you are needing more of the substance to the the desired effect? I know a lot of consumers tend to to increase their mm-hmm. um, their consumption in uh, in the first uh, few few weeks or months. Um, and number eleven, have you developed withdrawal when stopping the substance abruptly? I'm I'm sure a lot uh, would experience withdrawal if if they were to uh, to use daily long periods of time and then abruptly stop so it's not hard to uh, to uh, to meet the uh, the criteria for a mild use disorder if you have if you have 2 to 3 of uh, of these then it would be considered more of a mild use disorder 4 to 5 moderate and 6 or more severe
0: i know people who they seem to have Tolerance and withdrawal, and, and like anything that that would meet a uh, constitute a physical dependency, like with mm-hmm. coffee, like I don't even use kratom enough to ever, I've never developed a tolerance to it or increased my use, but with coffee, I I quit for a couple of weeks uh, about a month ago because my blood pressure was going up, and I noticed mm-hmm. that. My sleep patterns were are off. I was grumpy. I was getting a runny nose because uh, I've drank coffee since I was in my whole adult life, pretty much. Well, I don't know if that's an addiction because I, I have a it, but I but I think it, you know, it might be a uh, sort of a physical dependency, but it doesn't it doesn't hurt my life in any way my heart's fine it's not ruining my health and i feel like a lot of people have that with kratom and it's 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 helping them but they do have a physical dependency i guess where's maybe the line between dependency that might be beneficial or a uh, addiction that's that's harming people
1: you're absolutely correct there's um you know the different layers of uh, of severity. Certainly, um, tell us a little bit about about the the, the dangerness. For example, with with opioids, you can definitely see how one can easily meet at least six of uh, of the criteria. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's it's a serious uh, uh, serious addiction that leads to impairments in, in daily function and in, in their overall uh, in their overall life. Whereas, as you pointed out with, uh, with coffee, and there is such a thing as caffeine addiction, sure, you can, uh, you can meet maybe only two of these and, and have a, a mild uh, addiction to it. And I, going back to, to that uh, study that, um, that showed that 30, uh, 30% of uh, consumers do meet criteria, mm. um, what what is found is that indeed it's more, more of the tolerance and, uh, and withdrawal rather than the functional uh, impairment. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, if I had to hypothesize, I, w- I would say that most who, who would meet criteria for, for kratom addiction, the vast majority of them would probably fa- fall in that mild, maybe moderate severity mm-hmm. with, uh, with very few that, uh, that fall uh, in, uh, in, uh, in the severe category. But those uh, those very few that fall in the severe category; those are the ones that uh, that tend to get reported and uh, through through case reports. Those are the ones that I'm seeing and in, uh, in general clinical practice. So um, that that would be the, the breakdown um, uh, when it comes to addiction to kratom that I anticipate.
0: Do you treat kratom addiction with Spoxin?
1: <clears throat> yeah, so you know we um, we published a uh, a paper on that back in. Um, 2019 i believe it was uh, intended to uh, to gauge how uh, um, kratom addiction is uh, handled in the clinical setting and what we did there is we uh, we surveyed all addiction medicine physicians uh, inquiring about uh, whether they encounter patients who use Kratom, whether they, uh, they encounter patients who would meet criteria for uh, for an addictive disorder, and most importantly, how they manage it. Mm-hmm. And a vast majority of them did answer that they uh, they are using either buprenorphine, uh, I believe there was a couple that uh, said naltrexone or Vivitrol, none have said methadone, but also contrasting this survey with uh with the review of uh, of literature what has been published seems like it, it's along the same lines of um using similar medications as those for uh, for opioid use uh, disorder i believe there was a case series from uh, the veterans affairs where um some patients were uh, were on uh, on methadone and mm-hmm. i am uh, i am personally aware of uh, one uh, One case uh, here in New Hampshire where um, there's uh, there's a patient on a super low dose of uh, of methadone for for kratom addiction. Hmm. Uh, Personally, if you were to uh, to ask me, uh, where the vast majority of those individuals with, uh, with kratom addiction uh, that is severe and requires pharmacological interventions would fall. I would say that the vast majority probably uh, would benefit from, uh, from buprenorphine. Some would also benefit from, uh, from naltrexone. And I don't know about about methadone. I guess if it's severe enough, it probably would, uh, would be warranted. The lady that I uh, I mentioned earlier, the the one case that I uh, I had here at the hospital, I ended up putting her on uh, on buprenorphine, and to my knowledge, she's uh, she's done well. Um, okay. As I mentioned, she failed. Just supportive uh, supportive intervention, just simple detox did uh, did not work for her, given her severity of uh, of her addiction.
0: Well, i can already hear them saying it, but a, a lot of people would say, "Well, is aren't you giving them a heavier, heavier uh, opioid to treat the addiction? Wouldn't that be like treating uh, caffeine addiction with cocaine or something like that?" Buprenorphine is also a partial opioid agonist, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep.
1: Very, very similar to, um, um, very similar to uh, and the way that it uh, interacts with, uh, yeah. with the opioid receptors. Very similar, yeah. You know that's a that's a good uh, a good argument and concern to uh, to to keep in mind. But at the same time, I um, I have to to look at one's level of functioning. Mm-hmm. For example, look at this lady that I uh, I presented. She's lost her significant others, having severe functional uh, difficulties in her mm-hmm. life, uh, financial challenges. She's had seizures uh, due to the the high uh, probably due to the high mitragynin concentration in those. Uh, uh products so she's uh, she's definitely not functioning well and something uh, something has uh, has to be done and if if buprenorphine is able to to help her stay away from uh from um, uh, any uh, any substance and be able to to get her life together what uh what can we do we can't uh, we can withhold. A treatment that can be life-changing for her.
0: Yeah, but I noticed in the uh, overdose paper, um, you found that that the, the uh, toxicities resemble toxicities from stimulants rather than opioids, and naloxone really can't be used to reverse a situation where somebody might be overdosing on kratom.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's that's an interesting uh, concept there that uh, that we uh, we found because initially a few years ago, I would say we uh, we all thought that um, the the toxicity and overdoses are um, are based on uh, Kratom's interaction with opioid receptors. but really all uh, all the evidence from uh, from animal studies, from uh, presentations and uh, and various reports do resemble more more of the stimulant effect, more mm-hmm. uh, more of the adrenergic uh, effect that um, it involves, you know, um, seizures, uh, uh, high blood pressure um, involves uh, involves more of uh, of uh, the the cardiac uh, effects as well. Not so much the respiratory depression. Um, in fact, uh, some of those uh, reports to uh, to the databases uh, did find that individuals maintain normal uh, normal breathing rate, normal oxygenations. Um, so. Uh, yeah, the, the toxicities do uh, do resemble more of, uh, of the stimulant effect and not so much the, the opioid effect. I, I know there's at least uh, two, two case reports that um, describe uh, presentations where they tried to use naloxone and it had very uh, very limited effect. I, w- I would still endorse that. I would still endorse that uh, presentation should receive naloxone. Mm-hmm. And part of that is because there's uh, a lot of co-ingestants. Mm-hmm. Um, individuals who who present under such circumstances ingested uh, ingested uh, opioids along with uh, with kratom and naloxone would uh, would definitely assist there. And there's I, no there's yeah. no harm in uh, in uh, uh, delivering uh, naloxone to to someone. So if yeah. anything, it can only uh, it can only help reverse the opioid uh, component.
0: Yeah, and I recently just ordered those uh, naloxone breath things that uh you can get for free uh i should actually put a link up at some point to talk about that but um uh the nasal uh injector yeah yeah the yeah. Uh, mm-hmm, those yep
1: um yeah, interesting a lot of people don't know but you can uh, you can obtain those through uh, through your local pharmacy i know i've done uh, quite uh quite a bit of this uh, standing orders in uh in the area where i would um give a um, uh, a pharmacist the okay to uh, dispense those kits under my name to anyone who who comes and requests them. Oh, I'm sure it's yeah, in, that's um, great. Um, it's in other it's in other states as well, but yeah, uh, you can obtain one from the pharmacy without a script. In some situations.
0: Yeah yeah there's definitely been the you know fentanyl overdose issue and I'm in Pittsburgh so in this area it's been pretty bad. I had one more question about the animal study. One of the studies that said that the mitragynine kind of primed the animal for an opioid behavior. And that, that would be a concern, because I, I really haven't looked into that that much, that if somebody starts taking Kratom, and since there's cross-tolerance, um, would it make them more likely to take uh, other opioids?
1: I think it was uh, it was um, a drug substitution study where um, rats were trained to, to self-administer the uh, various uh uh, illicits methamphetamines heroin trying uh, to uh, to pre that with nitrogenine uh, actually decreased the response rate that was maintained but by uh, by, uh, by heroin mm-hmm. um, so it found that nitrogenine didn't uh, substitute for morphine self-administration, but then they also repeated that with uh, with the 7 hydroxymetragenine and it found that it uh, it had the opposite effect. As I guess, as we uh, expected based on what we know, it uh, it actually did substitute for uh, for morphine self-administration.
0: The, the one paper is called "Kratom as an Opioid Alternative: Harm or Harm Reduction." Do you think? create them or my tragedy maybe in the future when it's more studied and uh, could be a harm reduction tool cuz I, I think a lot of people have been successful using it but it, it's probably too early for a, any a psychiatrist or any kind of medical professional to say yeah go ahead and do that uh because we, we don't know enough about it maybe i just answer your question
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i um you know, it's uh, if if you look at the currently available FDA-approved pharmacological uh, treatments, sixty percent of uh, well we have or sixty two maybe more, I don't know the exact number, but sixty um, percent of the currently available medications are derived from uh, from a botanical in some uh, some form. Looking at the, at kratom, I personally believe that there is something therapeutic in the, the mitragynin component. I, I do have concerns about the, the 7-hydroxymetrogenin and the impact that that would have on, uh, on patients. But uh, I'm um, quite quite intrigued by the mitragenine. I would certainly love it to, uh, to um, be studied more so we can really understand uh, who, who would benefit, what kind of conditions, what dose, what route of administration, for how long. I, I think we, uh, we really need more studies on it. I use this analogy a lot. It uh, uh, has to do with uh, the foxglove plant. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: When um, back back in the day, they uh, they realized that uh, it can have some uh, some benefits in uh, individuals with cardiac conditions, and everyone was uh, was using it quite quite efficaciously until. People started having uh, very severe adverse effects, and they uh, um, uh, were able to to study it more, isolate the active ingredient, and now we have uh, digoxin, which helps a lot of uh, a lot of individuals. Mm-hmm. It's uh, available by prescription. We know about its safety. We know about what dose, what route, what conditions benefit for it. And I, I would be excited to to see the same thing happen with uh, with kratom and its alkaloids
0: yeah and and foxglove is still legal, but it's still legal, but you should not take it I, 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 <laughs> well thanks a lot this is a great conversation and it's good and it's good to talk about um addiction with with an addiction psychiatrist because i know it it happens and there's a big political conversation around it and we can't always get to an honest discussion without uh so i appreciate your expertise it's it's uh i hope uh it helps inform yeah, no, a lot of people. Yeah,
1: uh, thanks for having me. I um, I feel like there's always these two two sides, the pro uh, and anti kratom uh, sides that um, are quite quite divided, and we uh, we definitely need to uh, need to uh, figure out a way to uh, to work uh, work together so that we can. Uh, Better understand this botanical and and see who benefits and and who doesn't. And I uh, I uh, I think you're doing great uh, great job with kratom science. And I appreciate the opportunity to to come on and share some uh, some clinical uh, clinical insights.
0: All right, thanks for coming on again, Dr. Cornell Stance, you There's a link to his new survey in the description. If you use kratom, follow us on social media: TikTok, Facebook, Twitter. Please like, subscribe, share, rate, review, comment, tell somebody about it. The music is Risey, The song is Memories of Thailand. The Kratom Science Podcast is produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for kratomscience.com. Take a tolerance break every few days, and take care.